All right, if you've got a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 4. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles, you can find page 912. That's where we're going to be starting today, 912. All right, now that some of the noise is gone, I'm going to pray for us again, then we're going to dive in. Father, thank you that you have delivered to us the message of the gospel and all the rest of the Bible story. You've preserved it over the years, and you've given us today as a gift, Acts 4 and Acts 5. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to receive this as a gift, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to know what it is that you're saying to us, help us to understand the passage, to know what it means, know why it matters, and what we're to do with it. Lord, we... Uh, we are a people full of distraction, full of things racing through our hearts and our minds, and so we ask you to, to help slow us down so that we can focus in on your word over these next few minutes, and uh, pray that you would transform us, that you would be glorified in each person here, in this congregation as a whole. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've been working through the book of Acts, which is the story of the birth and the early years of the Christian church. And so far, all of the action is taking place in the city of Jerusalem. That is going to change very soon, but we're still in Jerusalem. In fact, all of the action so far in Acts is taking place in a particular room where the 120 are gathered together and at the temple complex, mostly outside of the main temple in this covered colonnade area called Solomon's portico. Very soon, though, the church is going to explode outward and start spreading the gospel around the known world like Jesus commanded them to do. But for today, we're still in Jerusalem. So last week, we were looking at how, in the book of Acts, the, uh, the kind of the two main guys, Peter and John, they had been arrested because they had healed a man in the name of Jesus. The authorities didn't like that. And they've been proclaiming the gospel, the good news of eternal life, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation to God through the name of Jesus. And so they were brought before the Sanhedrin and they were scolded. And after spending a night in prison, they were, they were told, okay, you can, go, you can go, you're free, but you're not free to do and speak as you wish. Do not talk about this Jesus character and certainly do not heal anybody in that. We saw then how they came back with the church, and they continued to be bold. They were bold and faithful in their words. They continued to proclaim the gospel without fear. They were bold and faithful in their lifestyle. They were bold, radical, countercultural disciples in the way that they spoke, and they were radical and countercultural in the way that they lived with each other. We saw how these new Christians, really the church is only a few days old at this point, were doing something incredibly radical. They were selling their possessions, bringing the money into a common pot so that it could be distributed to the other Christians who were in need. And we, we made the observation, and I'm going to make it a little more uh, clearly later today, that this is, this is not communism or socialism. You're going to hear a lot about that in the news over the next few months, and I want you to know that that is not what is being talked about here. We'll we'll deal with that more later, but for right now, let's just read how we ended things, or at least the key part of it yesterday, or last week. Acts 4, 34 to 35. Imagine the situation. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. 
That is pretty radical. That's pretty countercultural. And that should make us pretty uncomfortable to think about that. You know, we, we, we like our stuff and we like our bank accounts. And thankfully, the application of today's sermon is not go sell all your stuff, bring the money here next week, and we'll distribute it for you. That is not it at all. There's a much greater application today. Verse 36, he goes on. We meet this character that becomes a key player in the gospel story. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we get this Barnabas guy, and he's an example of the good that's happening in the church at this point. He's, uh, he's a Levite, so he's of the priestly class of Judaism. He's highly educated. He's kind of at the, the top socially. He's, he's got money because he's got a field that he owns, and not many people owned property much at that point. So He's, he's, he's one of the upper ones in society, and yet he sells what he has, he brings it, and he humbles himself. He's laying it at the apostles' feet for the good of other Christians, and he's held up as an example. Luke makes sure that we know that, the, that his given name was Joseph, but the apostles called him Barnabas because he was a son of encouragement. Barnabas is always encouraging people. And we'll, we'll see later in the book of Acts that it is Barnabas who brings the young convert Saul, who would later be called Paul, into the church and says, guys, I know that he was killing Christians a few days ago, but Jesus has changed him. Let's welcome him in. Let's teach him what he needs to know. And we get the greatest missionary in the history of the world as a result of Barnabas bringing Paul in and encouraging him. Barnabas knew something even really early in his faith that I wish all of us knew, and it's, it's this. We'll put it up on the screen. It's not about what you have. It's not about how much wealth or talent or time that you have. It's about what you do with it. There's a, there's a great variance in this congregation. As we look at in the, the village of Versailles, there's great variance in levels of income, of wealth, of talent, of time, of availability. There's, there's all kinds of different mixes in each person's life. And it's not about how much you have in any of those things. It's whether or not you're willing to be not an owner and a keeper of those, but a steward who manages those as though God had given you them as gifts, which he actually has. All right, so as we move into chapter 5, we're going to leave behind the good example of Barnabas, and we're going to get a bad example. It's quite a dramatic story. Barnabas is a picture for us of what we wish our church was always like. Generous, kind, self-sacrificial, serving each other. In fact, the picture of the church so far in Acts is really a great, ideal picture. Like we would all want to be a part of that church. And as we get into chapter 5, we're going to realize it's not perfect. It's not what we would want it to be. And it's actually a lot like our church or any other church. It's a mixed bag. Sometimes things go well, sometimes things go really badly. Sometimes you got people that are, that are just growing in Christ and they are excited to, to love and serve and sacrifice and share the gospel with others. And sometimes you have people that are selfish and just looking out for themselves. Sometimes we're honest with each other. We allow our brothers and sisters in Christ to see what's really going on inside of us. And sometimes we are dishonest and we try to lie and we try to put on this, this face. You, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? You got this Sunday morning 
face. Maybe you're really good at it. Like you could be fighting on the way here, but then you can flip the switch and put your Sunday morning face on. Or maybe your kids, like they, you've got them disciplined. You know that they will sit quiet for at least the first 15 or 20 minutes before we send them downstairs, right? And everybody will think, oh, such good, what a great family, right? Like, but man, if we could see into our hearts, my heart included, it would be a different story, right? The thoughts that go through our minds. Even maybe when we're sitting here, we're supposed to be listening to a sermon, we got our minds going off in directions that if we could put it up on the screen, we would hide in shame and run out the back door. Well, this chapter in Acts, chapter 5, tells the story of a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And they are not a good example for us. Ananias, the word basically means God has provided graciously. And Sapphira means beautiful. And it turns out they are not going to behave in a beautiful or gracious way in this story. So Acts chapter 5, verse 1. It says on page 913 in the Black Pew Bibles. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, so we got Ananias and Sapphira. They're part of the church. Uh, they're excited about what's going on. They have probably witnessed with their very eyes people like Barnabas bringing an offering to the church for the sake of the Christians that are in need. They've seen the, the joy radiating from Barnabas' face. They've seen the way that the people have looked at Barnabas and praised him and held him in high esteem. And there's something in them that says, we want to be seen in that way. They sell a piece of property, and they start talking. How can we play both sides of this game? How can we get the, the reputation, get the esteem from people? How can we have people look at us and think, those guys, Ananias and Sapphira, they are generous, they are selfless, they are they're the kind of people I want to be. And at the same time, how can we keep our bank account nice and full? And it occurs to them that, you know, they can sell this property and nobody's going to know what the, what the cost of it was. Like, the apostles are mostly fishermen, and now they spend all their time preaching, what do they know about real estate prices, right? So they can, they can sell it, say, for 200000 and then they could bring 100000 and they would, they would still look really generous, but they keep their bank account full, and they also look like heroes. Now, they didn't have to sell it at all. They didn't have to bring any of it to the apostles. This was not a requirement. This was a free will thing, and there's a motivation in their heart, a dark motivation in their heart, where they want to, they want to build themselves up in the eyes of others. And so they make this scheme together. They talk it out come up with it. They're going to lie. And they think they're going to get away with it. Verse 3. Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter gives us a lot to think about there. First of all, just imagine yourself sitting in on this conversation from the side. 
Can you feel the embarrassment and the shame for Ananias? This is an exceptional moment. First, Peter, he, he sees that, that this is not natural in origin. He doesn't say, look, you and your wife got together and you came up with what you thought was a pretty good plan, but it, we found out. No, he says, Satan, so the arch enemy of God, Satan has filled your heart. He's put this idea into your heart. Now, remember, this is Peter. So remember that, that defining two moments in Peter's life a year or two earlier when he confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus responds with, you got it, and I'm going to build my church on this rock, Peter. And then the next section is Jesus having to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And here's Peter bringing that idea of Satan, the archenemy of God, into this and saying, Ananias, your heart has been influenced by your archenemy. By Satan himself. He's put this, this lie in your heart. Now that should scare us, right? If, if we can be so easily influenced and even be unaware of it, like I assume Ananias doesn't walk up to Peter and think, Satan put this idea in my heart. It's a good idea. I'm going to do this. No, he's thinking he's, he's come up with this himself. And yet it's supernatural in origin. We will face temptations the rest of our life. You will. Unlike Ananias, you don't have to fall for it. You don't have to bite the carrot. God says this very clearly to us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Like, there's, there's no new scheme that Satan is using to fool you. He just uses the same thing over and over again. Everybody's been through it, right? God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This means that we never have that excuse, the devil made me do it, Because right? God is... He's, He's saying in 1 Corinthians that he always provides a way of escape. There's always a way out. There was a way out for Ananias and Sapphira, but they didn't take it. They fell for it. Let's go back to Acts. If we look at verse 3 again, we see, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So he's not saying... Why did you come lie to me? Can't you see I'm the apostle extraordinaire? I'm the main one? And he says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Of course, that doesn't work. The Holy Spirit knows the truth, right? Maybe you can identify this. This idea of living two different lies where you're presenting yourself in one way, but... You're actually living a very different life and you're, you're hoping that God doesn't notice. You know you've got people fooled. You've got you know, your pastor, your elders fooled, your outpost leaders fooled. All that. you got your people fooled, but you're really hoping you got God fooled too. And this particular passage should be a wake-up call for you. You do not have God fooled. That should scare you. 
but be encouraged by this too. Because the gospel tells us that not only are we fooling ourselves by trying to lie to God and get away with it, but God knows it and he continues to love us anyway. Not in a dismissive way like, you know, grandma and grandpa, they, they just they can never be offended by their grandkids and they just let them get away with everything. That's not what I'm talking about. This is the God of the universe, the lawgiver himself, the one most offended by our sin. And yet, even when we lie to him, when we try to live this deceptive life, he makes a way for us to be forgiven. That while Ananias and Sapphira are caught up in this lie, God is still loving them. Now, they could have repented right then. They didn't. Romans 5.8 says this, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get rid of the lies, to get rid of the deception, to get rid of the double life, to get rid of all the stuff and then die for us, but that while we were still all that mess, he died for us to show his love for us. Now don't miss a key theological thing in this passage. We've got in verse 3 where Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4... He says, you lied to God. So this is a passage used to help us understand the Trinitarian nature of God. We're meant to draw the conclusion that the Holy Spirit is God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse later, you've lied to God. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. It's not like in Star Wars. It's not an it. It's not a tool that that we can use. He, the Holy Spirit, is a he. He's a person. He's the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God, and yet distinct in three persons. And this passage, even though this is not the main point of the passage, is clearly pointing us in that direction. Now, this will be the last time that I touch on this, at least for a while. This passage has been historically used as a way to justify socialism and communism. It will continue to be used that way, and it's going to ramp up. If you are paying attention to the news in the next few months, you're going to hear some misinformed expert go on a talk show and say, well, you know, the Bible basically lays out that this is how we're supposed to work. We're supposed to have everything in common. We're supposed to share all of our, sell all of our stuff, and, and it's all put in a communal pot, and it's distributed that way. That's, that's basically communism. You will hear that or, or read it. It's coming. I'll put this picture up for you of this lady. Anyone wants to put her up? Anybody recognize her? Been in the news the last couple days. So she is the current presidential nominee for the comptroller of the currency at the U.S. Treasury. And she, in March of this year, gave a speech where she advocated for the elimination of all private banks. Get rid of, you know, Park National and Second, well, Second National, is Park National there. Can't keep track of one. Get rid of all those things, and we'll just have a national, federally governed bank. Now, some of you are thinking, that's a really bad idea, because you can't trust the federal government with that much power. And you're right, but then she takes it a step further, and she says, 
And we can use it to fight inflation. Because if all of your money is in a federally controlled bank and inflation is getting out of hand, then the federal government can, she actually said this, can take some of your money out of your account so that you have less to spend, which causes the economy to slow down, which slows down inflation. This is in America, right? This is, this is straight up communism. You're going to hear more about this in the future. Yesterday afternoon, there's a crowd in downtown Chicago protesting the Rittenhouse trial, and they are chanting, let me make sure I get this right, again and again, the only solution is communist revolution. Hundreds of people downtown Chicago chanting. You will hear people say, Christianity, when it started, was basically communist. And they're going to use these passages to support that. And they don't. They actually, they actually support the opposite, right? Because if we, if we look at our passage here, we'll go to the next slide, Caleb. If we, if we look at our passages, we see that in the, in the middle of this conversation, Peter says to Ananias, look, before you sold the property, it was yours. You could do anything you want with it. All right, communism says, communism says, no, we're going to take your stuff, your property, your money, and we're going to do it what we think is best, and maybe we'll give you enough bread to survive, right? Peter doesn't say it. He said, you had full control over it. You could do whatever you want with it. And he says, and after you sold it, you could do whatever you wanted with the cash. Nobody was forcing you. No government, no church was forcing you to do anything. This passage actually holds up what is true throughout the Bible, this principle of individual private ownership. We see this all the way from the beginning of time. We are stewards individually and communally of what God has entrusted to us. We are to steward those things through private ownership, not through something like communism. So when it comes up, maybe at Thanksgiving, you now you've got some, some argument that you can pull out. You say, no, actually, it's very different. Let's read this passage in Acts 4 and 5. Let's, let's talk about it. All right, going on. Verse 5. How is Ananias going to respond when he realizes he's been outed? Is he going to plead his innocence? Is he going to offer to kick in some more and we'll just forget about this whole thing? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. You imagine? Aren't you glad that, that God doesn't tend to work this way now? This is a very unique moment in time. It's a great fear came upon him. No kidding, right? Everybody who saw this, Peter says these words, the man falls down dead. Now, some of them are holding back. They're thinking, oh, he just couldn't handle the stress. Maybe it was a heart attack, right? Well, the story's not over. Sapphira is going to come in on the scene too. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out, and they buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. No kidding. 
great fear. You know, this is a this is a healthy fear, right? If if God is working in such a way that his representative can say some words and somebody drops down dead, well, we should be prepared to that, right? We should, we should have such a reverence and respect for the God of the universe who, who not only creates all life, but is sovereign over the end of all life, too. We serve the God who is sovereign over life and over death. And most of us are going to play out our days and come to some kind of natural end. But it doesn't have to be that way. And whether you end your life naturally or in a supernatural way like Ananias and Sapphira, your life will come to an end, and you don't know when that is. Ananias thought he had a whole bunch of days left. Sapphira, her, her husband is already in the ground, and she comes in having no idea what's going on, and she thinks that she's got it made. We tend to go through life not thinking about the end of our lives. Yet for every one of us, that end could be near. This building could just collapse right now, like that condo in Florida earlier this year. No warning. All right, you ready for some little more encouraging stuff? Verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. That's good news. That's, that's encouraging. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest, like the people of Jerusalem, dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So, Kalen, let's put our image up of the temple. Remember, they're hanging out in this, this covered hallway that goes around the outside of the temple complex. It's basically a public meeting area. They don't have a building to meet in that can accommodate them, so they're meeting in, in this public area, and every day they're listening to the apostles' teaching, and they're praying, and they're, they're going home and sharing their meals with each other and breaking bread and communion. This is their, their thing, is how they're working. And yet after this, after this death, there's something of a, a reverse church growth strategy going here. Like, you got 120 Next day you got 3,000, then you're up to 5,000 plus, and you're whoever, how much are you at right now in Acts? And like, okay, we're going to slow it down, we're going to kill a couple people, scare them, right? That's not how you keep a movement going. And yet the goal of the movement is not just to get a whole bunch of people together in a colonnade area. Goal is to make disciples of Jesus, and they need to understand that this Jesus is sovereign over life and death, that he, he cannot be fooled, he can't be lied to, that he is the ruler over all. And that's what this story shows us. Verse 13 says that the people held them, the apostles, in high esteem. There was this healthy fear there. Parents, you understand this. You want your kids to have a healthy fear of you. You want them to respect you. You want them to love you. You want them to obey you. And, and you want to have the ability to give them that look and have them shake in their boots a little. It's a good, healthy fear. And here the, the people of Jerusalem have that healthy fear towards the apostles. Verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. 
The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. What? A shadow? Is this how God works? Are these people being healed because the shadow of Peter passes over them? Notice the passage doesn't actually say that. The passage tells us what they're doing in hopes of being healed, but does not say that the shadow heals them. Now, it, it may be that God is working in that way. The passage does not specifically say that. It does tell us, though, that multitudes of people are coming to faith in Christ. Multitudes of people are being healed and being delivered by delivered from demons, unclean spirits, as it says here. These guys, these, these apostles, they have become superstars in Jerusalem. Can you imagine walking down the streets of Versailles, maybe at the hometown Christmas thing last week, and, and everybody's just thronging around you, wanting to touch you, wanting to have your shadow fall across them for blessing? This is a crazy situation, and it makes me really uncomfortable. This is such a unique moment in history. So special, so different. And some of you are asking, why doesn't this happen today? Right? We've got, we've got a bunch of people in this room right now that would love to be healed of certain things instantly. And if there was a shadow that could do it, we would be diving into that shadow right now, right? Or if somebody could pray a particular magic prayer over us, or anoint us with oil, or whatever it is, and we would be healed right away, yeah, we would go for it. And sometimes God heals. Sometimes he heals in natural ways, sometimes he heals in supernatural ways still. But this is something different. This is a level that we don't see, and we have to ask, why don't we see this? We might lump it together with those other miraculous signs of the early church, the the speaking in tongues, the prophesying. What are we to think about those today? How are we to understand that day compared to this day? If you think about the story of the Bible, the big, the whole story, there are a few seasons in those thousands of years covered by the Bible where there were lots of miracles happening at a particular time. I'm going to put a table up on the screen here, Caleb. So we've got a season around Moses where there's lots of miracles. You've got the, the ten plagues, and you've got the parting of the Red Sea, and you've got the water from the rock, you know, all this stuff, the, the serpent that heals him. You've got all this miraculous stuff happening around Moses. And then you've got another season of, of miraculous stuff with the prophets. You think about Elijah and especially Elisha. Just a miracle after a miracle after miracle. In that particular season. We get the season of Jesus where some days he's just doing miracle after miracle, all these healing people, and everybody's reaching out to grab him because they're just desperate for healing, and he's he's exhausted at the end of the day because he's been pouring himself out, not just physically, but supernaturally, all day long. And then you got the nature miracles like walking on water and all that crazy stuff. And then you've got this season right now that we're talking about with the early church and the apostles when you got Peter in his shadow, and you got you know, people dropping dead at the words. And it, what's common with these four biblical 
seasons, where everything was much more normal outside of these seasons. What's common with these four biblical seasons? Each season, God is delivering a specific authoritative message through an authoritative messenger to his people. You got Moses, you know, Ten Commandments, the, the greater law that, that comes after that. The prophets bring all kinds of correction. Like, you're supposed to be doing this. You're not. Here's the word from the Lord. You need to turn around, repent, go this other way. Jesus, he's the, the word incarnate, according to John. The word became flesh. Jesus is that. I mean, it, there's no more, there's no better communication from God than God himself in the flesh. And now in this season with, the, with the, the apostles in the early church, they have been tasked with taking the gospel message to the whole world. And why would anybody want to listen to them? They're just a bunch of common folks, fishermen and stuff. In each season, God uses miracles to authenticate, to, to establish the authority of the messenger and their message for the good of the people that they're sent to. And it's really important for us to grasp this. Because if we don't, we could be thinking, well, maybe there's, maybe there's something wrong with us today. Yeah, there's lots of wrong with us. But, but why, why don't we get to see this today? We're in, a, we're in a different season today. Yes, God still works miraculously. I, I believe God miraculously heals people. I, I'm, God may be raising people from the dead somewhere. I'm, I don't know. He... He does things that are supernatural and can only be explained in supernatural ways. But as far as a season where it's happening over and over and over again, we've got these four biblical seasons, and then the rest is a little more normal. The way that we live our lives is no less supernatural than the way they're living their lives. All of what we do is supernatural. Nothing in this world is just natural all supernatural too. Now, you may come from a, a church tradition or you've been exposed to a church tradition that will say, look, if you're not seeing these kind of things happening in your church, then your church is, is weak. It's a failure. You're, you're, sh you're shorting God. You're selling him short for what he could be doing. There are some churches that will say, unless you have spoken in tongues being able to speak a language that you don't know, that you're not a Christian, that it is the evidence of being born again. And we don't see that in the New Testament. That is going way beyond the witness of the New Testament. How do we support from the Word itself this idea that maybe those miraculous things happening in this early church are not really about the miraculous things, but they're about the establishment of the message of the early church. The author of Hebrews actually tells us this. So this is in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, on page 1001. We're almost done here. Speaking of, speaking of the gospel message proclaimed through the early church, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvations? Uh, if we ignore the gospel, what hope do we have? That's what he's saying, right? It, the gospel message, was declared at first by the Lord, that Jesus himself, remember the beginning of Mark, comes on the scene, one of the first things he says publicly in Mark is this, repent and believe the gospel. Just gets right into it. So 
It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. Right? So this sounds like the writer of Hebrews is a secondhand person. He's heard firsthand people tell about what Jesus accomplished and said. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So here's the gospel message. Don't ignore it. Um, what hope do you have outside of it? It was declared by Jesus himself. It was attested to, it was declared, it was testified about by those who were firsthand witnesses. God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The author of Hebrews here is pointing us to what's happening in Acts and saying, God is bearing witness of the authenticity, the authority of these messengers and their message, which we now have written for us in the New Testament. He's attesting to that authenticity through these signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And notice, he says, distributed according to his will. If we are going to say, we have to have this certain level of supernatural stuff going on, or you have to speak in tongues in order to prove that you're saved or anything. And then we're completely ignoring this last part. Distributed according to his will. It is God who gives the gifts. Whether it's a natural gift, like your ability to play football, or how much money you got, or the time that you have, or supernatural gifts like we're seeing in Acts here, it is God who gives the gifts according to his will, not according to ours. We just get to be stewards. So what is the purpose of the Ananias and Sapphira story? It is to establish the apostles and the message of the apostles as authoritative, as from God. God bears witness through this crazy act and the healings and stuff that comes after it, the authenticity of the messengers and of the message. Now today, we have our, our completed Bible, our completed Word of God that, that has this all written down for us. These guys, they are just operating from the Old Testament at the point that this is happening. What a benefit we have that Luke recorded it for us years later and gave it to us as the book of Acts. We, we have that as a unified witness for us. And we can know, not just through our own experience, because we've Many of us have tested it and have found it to be true. But we can know through this miraculous vouching by God that what these guys said is true, that they were sent by him to spread the gospel message. But then the overall thing for this particular passage is this. We serve a God who is sovereign over life and death, ruler, determiner over life and death, and over sickness and health. So all those people that were being healed and delivered in those last couple verses there, how many weeks, years, decades had they gone without that healing and deliverance? And yet God chose to do it at that particular time. Timing is his. The method is his. The choice to do it or not is his. He is sovereign over life and death, Ananias and Sapphira, and over sickness and health, all those healings and deliverances afterwards. He is the one who calls the shots.
He is the one who is in control. And yes, he, he calls us to plead with him in prayer for healing, for deliverance. He tells people to actually call the elders together and to, to pray together for healing. He remains sovereign over it all. So will you trust him in his sovereignty over life and death? If you are, if you are in Christ, your death is just a blip on the screen of your life. You will immediately find yourself in the glory, the presence of God. You do not have to worry about death. It doesn't necessarily keep us from worrying about life, though. There's lots of things to worry about in life. Will you trust God with your life as much as you trust him in your death? If you're struggling with health, somebody you love is struggling with health, will you trust him as the sovereign Lord over sickness and health? Ask him to heal you. Ask him to heal your loved one. Plead with him. Don't demand. Don't demand that it's on your time or in your way. Because he is our sovereign Lord. We are his people, his beloved people. We're not just slaves and subjects. We are his children. He longs to be good and generous to us. He's still our Lord, though. We should approach him as such. All right, let's pray. Father, this is both a, a heavy passage and a really weird passage, too. Crazy stuff going on. And yet... We, we choose to believe that it is true that you worked through the pen of Luke in order to record this for us and that we can trust it. Because of that, we know that we can strengthen our trust in you as the sovereign of our lives and of our deaths and of our sickness and of our health. So Lord, there's a bunch of people in our congregation that are sick with serious stuff right now. They need help. You've given help in natural ways through doctors and medicines and stuff, but Lord, if it was your will, we would ask you to, to touch them miraculously and heal them and deliver them from that pain or that discomfort or that thing that's threatening to take their life. We've got a whole bunch of regular everyday sickness too. Lord. Lots of families right now that are, that are sick, fighting things off. We thank you for building our bodies in such a way that we do fight things off. We gain uh, immunity against future things. We ask, Lord, that you'd be speeding that, that you'd be super, supernaturally working in us so that we can be strong and healthy and we can be serving you and serving our families and coming together as a church and as, as outposts and growing together. The little sicknesses, they disrupt that. I'm tired of that, Lord, and wish it would lessen. We ask you to, to intervene. Help us to be healthier. Help us to be stronger. Help us to be uh, able to gather together as a church. And Lord, for anyone in the room this morning who is not yet yours, may a healthy fear fall on them, knowing that their days are numbered by you and they don't get to know what that number is. Thank you, Lord, that you, you don't just give us this scary passage, but you give us the good news, the gospel message that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. We could not do it. We were hopeless and helpless, and yet you came for us when we were still sinners. You showed your love for us. Jesus died on the cross. 
So Lord, if there's a heart in this room that's resisting that, that wants to be the Lord of their own life, that thinks they've got all the time in the world, Lord, would you please draw them to you even this morning? Even as we reflect and as we sing this last song, would you be bringing them into your family? Through the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name.